Good morning. Congress wants to see classified documents held by Trump and Biden, the story of the FBI and the Russian oligarch, clocks ticking on Assange, and George Santos steps down from his committee assignment. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Wednesday morning, February 1st, 2023. Fresh off a decision to send M1 Abrams and German Leopard tanks to bolster Ukraine, Kyiv is pushing Western nations now to provide F-16 fighter jets. Asked at the White House if the United States would provide the warplanes, President Joe Biden answered no. But French President Emmanuel Macron told reporters Monday, by definition, nothing is excluded when it comes to military assistance. Also in Poland on Monday, the prime minister declined to rule out a possible supply of their F-16s. Meanwhile, the Russian military is claiming gains in the fighting near the village of Bakhmut, including taking territory beyond a small river that had served as the front lines. Ukrainian military officials say Russia is planning a new offensive to start in coming months, while Russia has denied any mobilization of its troops. In charges unsealed this week against Charles McGonigal, who ran the counterintelligence unit at the FBI's New York office, the Department of Justice charged a retired agent with violating sanctions by secretly working for Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. McGonigal was also charged in a separate indictment with accepting $225,000 from an Albanian intelligence employee. The former FBI agent has not been charged with accepting payments while he worked for the FBI. FBI. Deripaska, who made his billions in the aluminum trade, has been sanctioned by the United States for helping Russia in its war with Ukraine, but the oligarch has a long history of working with the FBI and the United States government. Vanity Fair journalist Vicki Ward has penned an article on her Substack blog, Vicki Ward Investigates, titled Inside an FBI Sting on Russian Oligarch Oleg Deripaska. In an exclusive interview, Ward tells the news she met the Russian billionaire at a party on a yacht docked in Montenegro. She says he knew her work, and they briefly danced, along with his security guards. When I met him, it was like being in a James Bond movie, frankly. He was kind of like, I mean, it, was, it literally was like a sort of scene where you meet the, the villain in the James Bond world. I was at a 40th birthday of a wealthy English guy in Montenegro. There were very big boats anchored in the marina. The biggest boat of all, I believe, belonged to Deripaska. I went with a friend. We were just curious. People seemed to be going on and off of this boat, so we went on, really out of curiosity. It was like going up the layers of a wedding cake. There were armed guards, armed security, all dressed in black and carrying guns at every floor on this boat. And it seemed to be increasing. The higher up you went, the less clothes the very beautiful women seemed to be wearing. We kept going and you got to the very top floor of the boat. I remember there were like 10 or so people sitting at a dinner table. I remember everything, the plates and the stemware, everything was gold. Very beautiful women wearing pretty much next to nothing. Deripaska was there, as was there was a Canadian, very successful Canadian tycoon who's now dead, Peter Monk. So it was a small group of people sitting at this table. Deripaska knew who I was. That's when he said to me, you know, I, mean, I was a journalist. I was an investigative journalist working for Vanity Fair at the time. I was quite well known at the time for, I'd written a book about Lehman Brothers. I wrote quite a lot about finance, as I still do. And I wrote quite a lot about corruption, as I still do. 
he did say to me, you know, I gather that other than me, you're the most dangerous person here. <laughs> and um, sort of unexpected one line. We went back down to the party and eventually he and his bodyguard came off the boat. So we had this sort of surreal, we, we started to dance, but when he danced, he danced with the bodyguards. It was sort of very, very unusual. That is my only real meeting with him. Ward adds Deripaska wasn't just dancing with scantily clad women on yachts, but with the FBI as well. For all his power in Russian, and he is very powerful in Russia, you know, he is an oligarch, he nonetheless clearly has a fascination with America that is, you know, to some it's reciprocated. The U.S. has denied him visa ever since 1998. Uh, initially, they said because of ties to, you know, Russian mafia, Russian crime. He always de- denied that. But in his sort of dance ever since to get American visas back, he has worked with the FBI we now know he worked with them in 2009. They approached him in Paris, and he paid $25 million of his own money to see if he could help find a missing FBI agent, a guy who also turned out worked for the CIA called Robert Levinson, who went to Iran, never came back. Um, the FBI, in return, did make it possible after that, even though Levinson wasn't found. The FBI did make it possible for Deripaska to get into the United States, which was actually against what the State Department wanted. I talk about how, at the same time, the FBI had operated at least one sting operation to try to find out who in Congress they believe was trying to help Deripaska get a visa. Sort of the 2016 period as the Trump campaign campaign is going into full gear and Paul Manafort, at one point running that show, Paul Manafort used to work for Deripaska, There are reports that the New York Times broke that the FBI was leaning very heavily on Deripaska to become an informant for them, wanting to know all about the Trump campaign's ties to Russia and Russian organized crime. He now, or people close to him, have now said that he believes that the fact he didn't help the FBI then is why he then got sanctioned by the Trump administration. He was one of seven Russian oligarchs who got sanctioned by the Trump administration. But as we know, the story doesn't finish there because he then he then got indicted for apparently being involved with a scheme that puts his girlfriend in America, having their first child in America, so their first child becomes an American citizen. They then try to repeat the scheme with baby number two on the way, and they get busted and indicted. This is then back. This is in the fall, and now his name is attached to this case. Charles McGonagall, the former FBI agent who's accused of breaking sanctions by taking money from Deripaska after he was retired. And, and, you know, again, Deripaska has denied this. It's really extraordinary because you don't hear about other Russian oligarchs and with the same frequency you hear about Oleg Deripaska. Vanity Fair journalist Vicki Ward has penned an article on her Substack blog, Vicki Ward Investigates, titled Inside an FBI Sting on Russian Oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Deripaska was himself indicted last fall with authorities saying he schemed to have his girlfriend give birth to her child in the United States. He's been considered a fugitive ever since. In 2016, Deripaska became a public figure in the United States because he employed Paul Manafort, former President Donald Trump's campaign chairman, as an advisor. 
And the Associated Press is reporting the FBI searched President Joe Biden's former office at the Penn Biden Center in Washington last November. The search came a week after Biden's personal lawyers found classified records there from his time as vice president. The FBI has already searched the Biden homes where additional documents were found. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a special counsel to find out how the classified documents ended up at the locations and if laws were broken. Former President Donald Trump is facing a more dangerous investigation by a separate special counsel after repeatedly refusing efforts to recover classified documents from his Florida estate. Former Vice President Mike Pence has also said he's found classified records at his Indiana residence. On Tuesday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell urged the Department of Justice to cooperate with senators calling for detailed information about the Biden and Trump documents. With regard to the uh, searches for classified documents. I think the bipartisan request of Chairman Warner and Vice, Vice Chairman Rubio is entirely reasonable. What they're asking for here would not interfere with these ongoing uh, criminal investigations. And I hope the administration will come up with a better answer than no, which is apparently what both the chairman and the vice chairman were told uh, recently. Uh, their request to find out exactly what kind of documents uh, were in improper custody seems to me squarely within their oversight mission on the Intel Committee, and I want to commend both of them for pursuing this in a bipartisan way. Senator Marco Rubio, a Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, says the Department of Justice has refused to share information about the documents, saying the agency claims releasing the papers could imperil the investigation. Last week, former British Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn, Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, and Noam Chomsky testified at the Belmarsh Tribunal in Washington, D.C., calling on President Biden to drop charges against Julian Assange. The founder of WikiLeaks is in London's Belmarsh Prison fighting extradition to the United States for publishing documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. National Lawyers Guild attorney Ann Wilcox is with the D.C. Action for Assange. In an exclusive interview with the news, she says a decision repudiating the U.S. extradition request was originally handed down by a British judge. Initially, a barrister, Vanessa Berazer, a magistrate, denied the extradition request based on the harsh jail conditions that he would face when he came back to the U.S. Then that decision was overturned on appeal when the U.S. government made representations, which of course aren't worth the paper they're written on, that he wouldn't be sent to the worst high-security prisons, the supermax prisons in the U.S., where other so-called terrorist defendants are held or suspects. That, of course, means nothing because they'll put him there if they want to. That decision has been upheld now by the British Supreme Court. I don't believe there are any other appeals within Britain that he can go to. They are trying to perfect an appeal to the British Supreme Court, but that's also a you know a voluntary appeal. The extradition request was approved by Preeti Patel, who's the Home Secretary, last July. She, of course, was under an earlier government, a different British government, the extradition request was approved by the Home Secretary, and she felt that given that the courts had approved the extradition, that she almost had to sign and approve the extradition from a request from the U.S. That's where it stands right now. The other possible appeal they have is to the European Court of Human Rights. 
And that is an appeal they can take, not based on the constitutional appeals within Britain, but on human rights issues and the conditions, again, that he would face if he came back to a U.S. supermax prison. That appeal has not been perfected yet or filed. So that's another step they can take. But even if the European Court of Human Rights rules in his favor, the British government can kind of reject that decision or ignore it. It's sort of an advisory opinion that they give based on human rights issues. In the meantime, there's been a lot of advocacy on behalf of Julian Assange. Could we wake up in the morning and he's in, on a plane like happens with a drug lord in Mexico and you just get up in the morning, it's yeah. in the news radio, Julian Assange uh-huh. pulls into Andrews Air Force Base? Yes, I think that is possible at this point because the extradition was approved by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. They're working on further appeals and trying to delay that, but it seems like time is running out and the British government could choose to do that. There's been some quiet diplomacy on behalf of, by the Australian Prime Minister, Albanese, who came into office within the last year or so and has made some quiet diplomacy to the Biden administration to say, you know, bring him to Australia either before trial or after there's a trial, he could serve his sentence here. But we're not sure how vigorous that diplomacy is because Australia, of course, is part of the Five Eyes intelligence group sharing all this information with the CIA and the NSA. They have the same reasons to be mad about what Assange did in their eyes. They're saying they're going to exercise diplomacy, but will they? But then in the meantime, the family of Assange has been working very hard. They had a hands around the parliament action in October, where they had thousands of people literally surrounding parliament. It's led by Stella Assange and other notables, Jeremy Corbyn and so forth. We had some actions in D.C. that were parallel to that around the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, There were also rallies on December 10th, which is the International Day of Human Rights. And then two important events recently. There was the Belmarsh Tribunal uh, a week ago Friday, which was at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And a whole panel of experts talked about the case you know, from the ACLU to Daniel Ellsberg to Noam Chomsky and others. And they talked about aspects of the case and other whistleblower cases like uh, Daniel Hale's case. There's going to be a film tour called of the Ithaca film, which is a film that's been spearheaded by the Shiptons, who are Assange's family. His father is John Shipton and his half-brother Gabriel Shipton. And they've produced a very well-done film, which kind of follows Stella Assange, having the two little boys that they had while he was in the embassy, then now taking them to Belmarsh Prison to visit their father on occasion. And they got married about a year ago when he was in prison. That film is going to be touring around the country over the next couple months. Are we like ramping up for the trial of the century when he gets here? I think we could be. I mean, it's going to be kind of a circus, kind of like the Johnny Depp trial that was going on here last summer. Very high level of press interest. And the funny thing is that the press won't cover it now. They won't come and cover our actions that we do for Assange. But when Assange is actually on trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, I think it's going to be very high profile. You know, he's very well known. The national press is going to have to cover it at that point, even though they ignore us now. There was the statement by the five outlets, the New York Times, Guardian, Le Monde, and El Pais, and one other that said, we did use his material. So they said, we used his material, he should be released. That's the only time that the mainstream press has actually supported him. They ignore the advocacy that we attempt to put out on his behalf. 
if there is a trial in the Eastern District of Virginia, which is called the Rocket Docket, oh, yeah. where they put all the, the national security cases, like Daniel Hale was there just a couple summers ago on trial. He did plead guilty, and he was sentenced. It's the same prosecutors. It's the same judge. So the bottom line, legally, they are perfecting an appeal to the British Supreme Court, and they're also trying to go to the European Court of Human Rights, but the extradition order has been signed by Priti Patel yeah. last summer, so anything could happen. He could, yeah. They could treat him mm-hmm. like he was a... Uh, prisoner, even though he hasn't been convicted of anything. That's the real tragedy here, is that it's all based on trying to get him to the U.S. under this indictment, which would bring up to 175 years in prison under the Espionage Act. But he hasn't been convicted, tried or convicted on any of those. So it's all about the extradition. National Lawyers Guild Attorney Ann Wilcox is with D.C. Action for Assange. She spoke exclusively with the news. If extradited to the United States, Assange faces up to 175 years in prison for violating espionage laws. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Wednesday he was considering military aid to Ukraine and was willing to serve as a mediator in the war, although Netanyahu made no firm commitments as Israel has preserved a long-time relationship with Russia. The remarks came after a visit by Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who called for calm after a flare-up of violence between Israel and Palestinians. The fighting began after Israeli commandos killed 10 Palestinians and in retribution a mosque was attacked, killing a similar number of Israeli settlers. Netanyahu came to power with a coalition of extreme right-wing parties in Israel, and the government has been ramping up attacks on Palestinians. Israeli writer Miko Pellet tells the news the new Israeli government is authoritarian and anti-democratic. Anybody who says the word Israel and democracy in the same sentence is lying, either to himself or to the rest of the world. Why is that? Because there's no such thing as an Israeli democracy. Israel has never been a democracy unless you're an Israeli Jew. But today, half the population that Israel governs are not, are not Israeli Jews, they're Palestinians, and they have no rights. The idea of an Israeli democracy is a complete joke. It was not designed to be a democracy. It was designed initially, officially, formally, in a very big, from the very beginning, to be an apartheid regime. And that's exactly how it's been. Except that now, things are a, little more extreme, a lot more extreme because the people that are in power are not regular politicians. They're zealots. Right. Very scary to a lot of people. How did it get to that? The more the apartheid regime was allowed to maintain itself and flourish and be recognized as a so-called democracy, $3.8 billion in foreign aid, billions more coming in from other countries. Israel is riding high. Israelis believe that the Palestinian issue is not their problem. The segregation is so deep that they don't even realize what, what reality exists across the street from them. And I say this as someone who grew up there. These people who were considered fringe, lunatic, have gained more and more and more popularity because this has kind of always been in the background of the Zionist discourse anyway. Yeah. And they've had some serious successes and people admire success and people admire Israelis admire what they perceive to be power. This is coming. This is in the making. It's like my friend Ace Amro, a Palestinian from Hebron, says, you know, the Israelis thought that these people, the Ben Gvir, the settlers, were just only existed in our lives as Palestinians. Well, now we're giving them back to them and saying, fine, now you can have them. See what it's like to live under those people. And that's exactly what happened. Now the most powerful people in Israel are the scariest, rabid, zealot, right-wing settlers 
who have been terrorizing Palestinians for decades. It's not really a, a conflict. It's, so one side is fighting for the liberation and the other side is uh, fighting for more and more and more power. The world doesn't focus on seeing children uh, shot by snipers in the streets the way I saw. And uh, it's all over YouTube, but seems to not make an impact on the world. No, Palestinian lives have no value. Israel did a really good job in portraying Palestinians as the devil. Whether it's a Palestinian fighter in Janine, whether it's a Palestinian kid going to school, whether it's a Palestinian journalist like Shirina Wakla who was assassinated, it makes no difference. It, doesn't, it just doesn't go beyond, you know, a little condemnation here and there and people move on. Nobody cares and there are no guarantees. There's no safeguards for the safety and security of Palestinian people. And today, more than ever before, that needs to be something that is demanded particularly from the United States, allowing this to continue by giving Israel all this money. Safeguards for the safety and security guarantees for the safety and security of Palestinians have to be demanded and given, or else what we've seen so far is nothing compared to what's coming up. What do you think about the Abraham Accords? And today they were talking about Iran, the threat of Iran. Why do they keep bringing that stuff up? They keep bringing up Iran as a smokescreen because they don't want people to be talking about the crimes Israel is committing. So Iran is a great smokescreen. Everybody look over there, Iran. Don't pay attention to what we're doing in Gaza. Don't pay attention to what we're doing in Hebron and so on. And the Abraham Accords are one big farce. It's a joke. Nobody, I mean, the people, on, the people who live in those countries that, that, whose government signed these accords oppose them vehemently wherever they can. In the Arab world, Palestine is the darling. The Abraham Accord is some kind of a kind of like a nice cover over this monstrosity, which is called Israel, as though to give it legitimacy. But they're not going to hold. Okay, leave it at that. Anything like that? All people of conscience need to stand up and demand there will be guarantees for the safety and security of Palestinians and join the Palestinian struggle for liberation and for their rights. Israeli writer Miko Pellet, Blinken also met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who appealed to the United States to hold Israel accountable for its attacks on Palestinians. And in national news, Republican Congressman George Santos says he has temporarily withdrawn from two House committees. He says he wants to focus on serving his constituents in New York's 3rd Congressional District. Santos had a testy exchange of reporters waiting for an elevator. He was asked if he could serve constituents without a committee seat. I haven't been in touch with my campaign staff. I've been focused on the work here. Pardon me, sir. Um, so I, I don't have an answer for you now. Until you get cleared, are you confident that you will be cleared? Yes, I am. Why, Why are you confident? I'm confident I'll be cleared because I have, I have nothing to hide. Why when do you think? Questions about your your past, your finances. My you questions will be answered to the appropriate people. The media is not judge and jury of anything. Santos has been at the center of a spiraling scandal over his fabricated resume, bizarre behavior, and campaign finances. GOP Representative Elise Stefanik defended Santos. Sure. Like all of my colleagues, uh, particularly in New York State, uh, I supported George Santos as the nominee, and the people of his district voted to elect him. Now, we just uh, got out of conference, and George has voluntarily removed himself uh, from committees as he goes through this process, but ultimately, voters decide. And uh, I'm very proud that in New York State, we flipped five districts to help deliver us the majority, uh, and ultimately, voters make this decision about who they elect to Congress. Again, this process is going to play itself out. I've already commented on this numerous times. Uh, and again, it's going to play itself out. But ultimately, voters are going to make that decision, whether it's in the primary election or in the general election. Representative Elise Stefanik. In related news, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, a leading right-wing extremist, told reporters that Santos 
asks that we all support him when everything settles down for him to serve on committees. Meanwhile, on Wednesday, Green took to the House floor to liken the death of Trey Nichols, beaten to death by Memphis police, with the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt, who was one of the invaders of the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Ms. Crockett, I do agree with you about Tyree Nichols' death. I watched the video, and it was tragic and, and extremely difficult to watch. I would also like to point out that that city is Democrat-controlled, and the five officers that have been arrested and charged are black. And I think that this isn't, isn't an issue of uh, racism or anything like that. I think, I think that the judge and the, the jury and the trial needs to work out what happened there, but I share that with you. But I'd like to also point something that I'd hope you share with me. There's a woman in this room whose daughter was murdered on January 6th, Ashley Babbitt. And Ashley Babbitt has, there's never been a trial. As a matter of fact, no one has cared about the person that shot and killed her. And, and no one in this Congress has really addressed that issue. January 6th committee didn't address it. And I believe that there are many people uh, that came into the Capitol on January 6th whose civil rights and liberties are being violated heavily. And this committee will, I, I hope, uh, Mr. Chairman, look into those civil rights abuses uh, because they're happening in a jail right here in this city. And I hope Ms. Norton uh, will, will care about that as well, um, as, as, as well as jails across the country. I've been in that jail. And um, it's not just the January 6th defendants pretrial, by the way. It's many of the inmates in there living in horrific conditions. Um, so I think that's something that you and I can care about. Um, will the gentlelady yield just for a moment? Did it? Uh, no, oh. I will not yield. Um, but I would, I would like to say and, and point out that civil rights and liberties are important, but we have to make sure that we crack down on the two-tier justice system because that needs to end. I yield back the remainder of my time. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. And finally, Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin received an ovation Tuesday during the House Oversight Committee's first meeting since he started cancer treatment. He was introduced by committee chair James Comer of Kentucky. With that, I yield to the distinguished gentleman from Maryland, ranking member Jamie Raskin, to introduce his members. But first, I want to publicly say, Mr. Raskins, we're all rooting for you. Uh, we know that you're going to win this battle. Uh, if, uh, you're in our thoughts and prayers, and it's good to see you here today. I yield to Ranking Member Raskin. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much. It means a lot to me, and I've been uh, gratified to receive so many kind words of uh, encouragement and sympathy from colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And uh, I hope um, that these expressions of um, concern and solidarity will become seeds of friendship over the year. I certainly plan on getting through this thing and uh, beating it, and I thank you for your patience and indulgence. And, <clears throat> Raskin announced in December he'd been diagnosed with B-cell lymphoma and was about to start a course of chemotherapy. He says his prognosis is excellent. At the committee meeting, he wore a bandana to cover his head, bald from the treatment. Raskin credited musician Stephen Van Zandt for the new look. And that's the news for Wednesday morning, February 1st, 2023. The news is produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.